we will be in Isaiah 49. We're actually going to take a running start at it. And we'll look back at Isaiah 48 for just a moment. If you need a Bible, wave at Jim. Oh, throw something heavy at him. Not heavy enough to hurt him, just... Welcome back to Wednesday night as we try to get a little momentum going here in our study through Isaiah. We took some time away from Isaiah, so last week we began with a recap. If you missed it and you're not intimately familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, you may want to grab last week's study, the archives online, on the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. But One of the things we mentioned, Isaiah 49 begins a new section of the book, a new, really a new section within a new section, a new subsection, I guess you'd call it, the theme of which is Israel's iniquity being pardoned. Where do you get that, Patrick? Well, last week we looked at the outline for this second section of Isaiah that we find in Isaiah 40, verse 2. Isaiah 40, the second big section of Isaiah, the section that has not anything anymore to do with Assyria, which was the dominant enemy, the dominant force, um, the 800-pound the gorilla in, in the first section, chapters 1 to 39, but the second section that has to do with Babylon and the Babylonian captivity. Beginning in Isaiah 40, we have an outline of that section. The outline begins with God saying to Isaiah, comfort my people and tell them three things. Tell them that the war is over, that their iniquity is pardoned, and that they've paid double for their sin. And without going into the depth that we went into last night, we, or last week rather, we, we saw that the war is over is really the topic of chapters 40 to 48, the subsection that we concluded last week. Israel's iniquity being pardoned, that's our topic beginning tonight in chapter 49 and running through chapter 57. And then the remainder of the book, chapter 58 to 66, has to do with Israel uh, paying double for her sin as God's firstborn. But the second section tonight, iniquity pardoned. As soon as we hear that phrase, iniquity pardoned, forgiveness, we know the subject is going to be Jesus. Not, I guess not subject in the grammatical sense, because the subject, the focus of Isaiah's prophecy is, is still Israel, but Jesus is the means by which the pardon is accomplished. Grammar geeks, help me out. What is that, dative or something like that? It doesn't matter. Jesus is going to be very much in view. He's not named here, of course, but he's very much pictured in these pages as the Messiah of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel and by extension of all of humanity. We're always on the lookout for Jesus anytime we open our Bible. The volume of the book is written of him. And our hermeneutic on Wednesday nights for many years now has been to find Jesus here in these pages of the Old Testament. We look to the history, we look to the culture, we look to the characters, because they have a lot to say to us. There's a lot there that speaks to us. But Jesus is on every page, and we want to make sure that we don't miss him. Directly or indirectly, he's the hero of every story that we read in Scripture. 
And the last handful of chapters that we've looked at together, chapter 40 to 48, Jesus has been there indirectly rather than directly. The central figure, the coming king, if you will, of those chapters hasn't been named Jesus, he's been named Cyrus. The short-term prophecies with a short-term fulfillment, fulfillment only 150 years or so in the future from when Isaiah is speaking them, have to do with Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persian Empire, and short-term, the deliverer of Israel, the one who returns Israel from exile, which happened. God said it would happen 150 years ago, it happened. And, and every prophecy that Isaiah spoke about how that deliverance was going to happen, how the city of Babylon would fall, the details about that night when, when the troops came under the walls, and who would, who would be in charge, Cyrus, named, his name written in the scroll of Isaiah more than a century before he's born, and exactly when it would happen at the end of 70 years of captivity that God prophesied. But as we transition to chapter 49, God's done talking about Cyrus. He's going to tell us, Cyrus, that was just for starters. That was just a foreshadowing. I mean, he was real. But at the same time, he was a picture of another deliverer and a greater deliverance. And the fact that all of the prophecies related to Cyrus, those incredible, exhaustive, detailed prophecies that, that are given here in Isaiah, are fulfilled exactly and specifically, should have given Israel confidence that all of the remaining prophecies about an unnamed but coming Messiah prophecies we're about to read about one greater than Cyrus would also be exactly and precisely and even more dramatically fulfilled. We left off last week in chapter 48. As we dive in this week, I want to glance back at just one verse. Look at verse 16, where we read, Come near to me, hear this. I've not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. And this marked a dramatic shift for us. Because up to this point, God the Father had been speaking through Isaiah. But now whose voice are we hearing? Jesus went in doubt, say Jesus, but we actually don't have to guess. He signs his name. In the preceding verses, he said, I'm the God of eternity, I'm the God of creation, I'm the God of redemption, I'm the God of prophecy. The God of eternity, verse 12. The God of creation, verse 13. And the God who redeems, verse 14. I'm the God who, who speaks and fulfills prophecy, verse 15. Who fits that description? Who's not the Lord Jehovah who sends or his spirit? It's got to be a third person. The second person of the Trinity. The third one who's not named yet. Jesus. I want to circle back to that because... As we begin chapter 49, that's still who's talking. It's still Jesus' voice that we're hearing. He introduces himself in chapter 48, and he continues to speak. Listen, O coastlands, to me, chapter 49, verse 1, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. 
The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He's made mention of my name. Listen, take heed. That's a very powerful echo from verse 16 that we just read, isn't it? Verse 16, come near to me, hear this. Chapter 49, verse 1, listen, take heed to my words. What words? What are you saying, Jesus? The Father has called me from the womb. I'm elected, I'm chosen, I'm sanctified, I'm set apart. I have a purpose, he's saying. And I have from the matrix of my mother. Matrix is a strange word to read in this context. It can also be translated bowels or internal organs. But the shortest distance between two points, the simplest way to translate it, would be the womb of Jesus' mother. In the womb of my mother, he made mention of my name. What's that a reference to? Surely it's Isaiah 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name. Even in the womb, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 2. And he's made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he's hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. So the sword, that points to God's word, and that points to Jesus, who's the living word. It speaks to the protection that God has over the word incarnate, the word become flesh. Protection that we see places like Luke chapter 4, when Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah and speaks of his mission and says this day, these words are fulfilled in your hearing and they try to run them off a cliff. And Jesus says, yeah, you can try, but it's not my day yet. And so you're not going to succeed. Polished shaft. He has made, not for me, he doesn't make a polished shaft and hand it to Jesus and say, hey, this is for you. Jesus is saying, he made me into a polished shaft. What's the idea there? What would a polished arrow be good for in Jesus's day, in Isaiah's day. That would be an era with a very special purpose, wouldn't it? If we translated it into our vernacular, you've seen westerns, you've seen crime shows where somebody has a bullet and they've, they've carved someone's name into it. This bullet is, is for this person. Same idea. This is, a, this is an arrow set apart for a very, very special purpose. What purpose? to seek and save the lost. Verse 3. He said to me, the Father said to the Son, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now we can get confused here until we realize that Israel, in this context, is a title of Jesus. This is where rabbis like to dig in and disagree. Well, clearly this isn't the Messiah. Because, see, he says Israel. So he's talking about Israel. Except that he's clearly not talking about Israel. He's talking about himself. Why does he use that title? Well, that's something we can disagree about. Is he asserting that he's the king of Israel, perhaps? Is this a reference to the fact that Israel means chosen of God, or even can be translated prince of God, perhaps? Is this Jesus saying, I am the ideal Israelite. I am a picture. I am the person that each of you was always supposed to be. Worshipper, follower, proclaimer of the Most High, 
the one who glorifies, end of verse 3, the one who glorifies God. Could be any of those, could be all of those. But taken together, what do we have? Jesus, called of God, verse 1, chosen of God, the living word of God, protected and sanctified and set apart by God, verse 2, lives to fulfill the plans of God, verse 3. What is he set apart for? To glorify God. Because his crucifixion, his substitutionary death for our sin, is the greatest glory that this universe has ever given the Most High. But so far, as we continue in verse 4, so far, Jesus says, all of those plans and purposes don't really seem to be coming together. Then I, have, I, I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. He's frustrated. Because all of his ministry up to this point has been empty. It's been nothing. The word there is tohu, the same word that we encounter in Genesis 1 verse 2, when the earth became void and empty. There was nothing there. In vain. It was vapor. It looked substantive. It looked solid. But no, it just, it just faded away. What is Jesus talking about here? couple possibilities. He could be talking about his time alongside Israel up to this point, up to the point that Isaiah is speaking. He could be referencing the various Christophanies, the various personal ministries he's had to the nation Israel, and that's very possible. Another possibility is that he's speaking in the prophetic past tense. We encountered this this weekend in Romans, right? Speaking about something that hasn't happened, that will happen with utter certainty because it's going to happen. Is he speaking here in verse 4, the first part, about his first coming? About the rejection that he encounters? Is he speaking perhaps from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he speaking on his knees in the garden? No one has stood with me. And again, it could be both. Either way, it's important that we keep reading. I've said I labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Jesus is undeniably discouraged the beginning of verse 4. But there's less emotion in what he's saying than there is observation, right? He's saying, this is what it is. I've labored, I've served, I've ministered. I see no fruit. <laughs> but he continues on, almost as if he preaches to himself. Yet I know it's not wasted. Surely it hasn't been in vain. It looks like it's in vain. But it hasn't been in vain. Why? I've been obedient. And obedience to the Lord is never in vain. Listen, obedience to the Lord is never without fruit. What an important reminder to us, right? In our lives, in our ministries, with our friends, with our family. If we're faithful, if we're obedient, God will bless. Maybe in ways that we get to see and celebrate. Maybe in ways that will escape our notice until eternity. 
But if we're faithful and obedient, God will bless. And if you're saying to yourself, yeah, but I haven't been faithful and I haven't been obedient, then start. Can't go back in time, so, so that is what it is. It's sunk cost. Start being faithful. Start being obedient. Start seeking to know and do the Lord's will, and he will bless. We can't go by what we see. The end of the story hasn't been written. Our lives are still unfolding. In verse 5, the Father reminds Jesus of that. And now the Lord, Jehovah, says, who formed me, it says to Jesus, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. He's preaching truth to himself. He's reminding himself of things that the Father has spoken. He's encouraging, Jesus is encouraging himself with truth of God's word. I am so encouraged that Jesus needs that. We talked a few Sundays ago about Jesus, though omniscient and omnipotent and everything else that God is, still, as, as the incarnate Christ, learned obedience. That was Hebrews 5.8. There was nothing he didn't know intellectually, academically. He had to learn it, though, experientially. How encouraging to see that in progress. To see Jesus speaking of being encouraged, being reminded, being taught by God the Father the same way that we sometimes need to be reminded of things that we know. We need to remind each other. We need to let God's Word and God's Spirit bring to our remembrance truths that we've read. Maybe at one point we even treasured, but we've lost our grip on. I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. To our Western mind, we would turn those around. God will be my strength. Where God guides, God provides. The things that he's given me to do, he will give me what I need to do them and will be glorified in them. God's work done God's way produces God's glory. Even when Jesus is rejected. Verse 6, indeed he says, it's too small a thing that you shall be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you shall be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus commissioning the apostles said, Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. We're going to go get all of them, God says. Sometimes we look at this church age as plan B. Well, Israel didn't work out. So plan B, let's go after the Gentiles. No, that's no more plan B than the cross was plan B. I've said before, you've heard me say almost every week recently, the cross was not an ambulance sent to the site of a wreck. The resurrection wasn't God saying, oh, wait, 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 we've got to do something. We weren't expecting this. No, from before the foundations of the world, God knew that we would sin and that our sin would require substitutionary atonement. And from the foundation of the world, God knew that Israel would reject her Redeemer. 
but that his plan would continue unfolding, that that rejection would lead to the gospel going to the nations, going to the Gentiles, coming to you and me for his glory. Why does God do anything for his glory? Today, yes, through Christ, Gentiles primarily are entering the kingdom. But one day, Paul reminds us, one day God will circle back and take care of unfinished business. I do not desire, brethren, Romans 11.25, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel forever. It's not what Paul says. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and so all Israel will be saved. It's a season. It's a dispensation, if you want to be technical. But God's not done with Israel. His plan is unfolding. When we get through Romans 8, we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Not for the sake of rushing, not for the sake of making up lost time, because who cares? But because Romans 9 and 10 and 11 really fit together, there's one central truth through those three chapters, and it, it, it will be clearer if we take some bigger bites. God's not done with Israel. He has a plan. He has since before the beginning of time, and it is unfolding. And all of that comes together in verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him who man despises, to him who the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Everything that we've been reading, re recap, recapitulated in one verse. The fact that today the gospel is going to the Gentiles doesn't change Jesus' mission. He is still, first and foremost, Messiah of Israel. Destined, look at the verse, destined to be despised by humanity in general, but rejected by Israel, the nation, singular, the nation Israel in particular. And he'll be under the rule, under the dominion of Jewish and Roman kings alike. They'll come together, Isaiah is prophesying, to dominate him, to put him to death, we know. But there's going to come a day where the tables turn. Kings shall see and arise... Sorry. Yeah, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Tables are going to turn. What's down is going to be up. What's that going to be like? Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I've heard you, and on the day of salvation, I've helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. Again, Acts chapter 1, the disciples said, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that God has reserved to his own understanding. The Father says, yeah, I've got a plan. It's unfolding. I've got timing. It's working. 
And when the time is right, I'm going to say go. And you're going to restore the covenant to the people. What's in view there? When the time is right, all of my promises to Israel that are still pending, God says. The promise that there be a son of David seated on the throne for all of eternity. The promise of the land. All of the covenants, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. All of those promises that are pending will be fulfilled. They'll go from being desolate heritage. Israel looking with, with, with their hands empty and say, where is it, God? When is it, God? Their hands will abruptly be overflowing with blessing. And nothing's going to stand in the way. Verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. <coughs> we sang last, last weekend, maybe last Wednesday, you'll turn seas into highways. I think it was last Wednesday. You'll turn seas into highways. You'll turn graves into gardens. Why? Not just to show off. Not just to prove that he can. Verse 12, God does that to facilitate a reverse exodus. What would that be? In a, dis, a regathering. A return of his people to the land. Verse 12. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. What's Sinem? We don't know for sure. Modern Hebrew would translate that China. And that's not impossible. But older ancient texts suggests that it's part of Egypt. Either way, the picture is, is Jews coming from the four corners of the globe, coming from every direction, returning to the land, and returning, verse 13, with praise and jubilation. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. The word mercy there understates the idea. The Hebrew is rachim, which can be, is, in our New King James, variously translated mercy, pity, compassion, love. And I think it's all of those things and more here in context. The Lord will have mercy on his afflicted. Read the next few verses, and I think you get a sense of, of, the, of the enormity of what he's saying. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. But can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion, same word, on the son of her womb? God's going to love me like a mother loves a child that she nurses. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me dripping with, with meaning, right? Forget you? Can a mother forget a child that she's nursed? Forget you? Can I forget a people that I died for? Every time I look at my hands, Jesus says, I see Jerusalem. 
you and I can be arrogant and say, oh, Jesus died for the church. And that's not wrong, but it's not all the way right either. Jesus died for Israel, and we're grafted in. Every time Jesus looks at his hands, he remembers his love for Israel. Back to the second coming and the redemption of Israel. That's a part of it. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. The picture here is there's, there's an exodus of those who abused Israel and there's an influx of those who can't wait to return to Israel and they pass each other on the road. Those racing to Israel and those racing away. Verse 18. Lift up your eyes, look around and see all these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. Slow down and remember who's talking to who. This is the Father talking to the Son. All these gather together and come to you, the redeemed. As I live, says the Lord, God the Father, you shall surely, Jesus, clothe yourself with them. With who? With the redeemed, all as an ornament, and bind them on you as a bride does. If you were with us on Christmas Eve, we talked about how a lot of the accusations about Christmas being a pagan holiday really don't hold water. And, and even some of the Christmas traditions that you know, are of dubious origin, we can point at them and, and we can let God redeem them. Christmas lights is an easy example. Whatever the origin of, of candles or electric lights in our day on Christmas and Christmas Eve, Surely we can point to them and say, this is Jesus, the light of the world. One of the things I didn't talk about on Christmas Eve, ornaments. What did we just read? God the Father saying to Jesus, decorate yourself with the redeemed as ornaments, as a bride decorates herself with jewelry. There's a conversation you could have some, with someone about a Christmas tree and the one who hung on a tree to redeem us, that we would bejewel him. Revelation 19, when we return, you and I return cloaked in fine linen that we read in Revelation 19. That fine linen is what? Righteous acts of the saints. Good. Just as we're decorated with the righteous acts of the saints, Jesus is decorated with the redeemed, the redeemed of Israel and the tribulation saints. Not saying that that was the origin of Christmas tree ornaments. I'm just saying the next time somebody says, that's pagan, you've got a really, really good biblical conversation to have. Where are we? Verse 19. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. With the, even with the restoration of desolate places, even with the desert blooming with flowers and green trees, there's not going to be enough space for everyone who wants to live in Israel. The children you'll have, verse 20, after you've lost, the others will say again in your ears, the place is too small for me. 
Give me a place where I may dwell. People will be cramming together. But in our day, when people cram together, they get mean. There's all kinds of sociological studies about the effects of crowding and how, and how we socially engineered housing projects in the 50s and 60s and 70s to bring about the, 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 the crime and the, the man's inhumanity demand that they became known for because of the crowding. That won't happen in the kingdom. Verse 21, there'll be celebration. Then you'll say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I've lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where were they? The whole trope of the wandering Jew is going to come to an abrupt end. For the last 20 centuries, the Jews have thought of themselves as alone and isolated and exiled, misunderstood, forgotten, banished, mistreated. Isaiah just said, there's going to be a family reunion and everyone who thought himself an orphan is going to be astounded at how much family there is. Celebration. The remainder of the chapter focuses on the Gentiles. While the Jews are returning and rejoicing, what about the nations? Think back, just to kind of set, set the stage for what we're about to read. Summer 2021, we did a series through most of the summer, Israel Past, Present, and Future. The goal was to kind of load in a basic understanding of Israel's past, present, and future timeline so we wouldn't have to, to make future or frequent reference to it, and you know how that turned out. But one of the things we talked about was how after the return of Christ, there's 75 days before the kingdom begins. That's Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12, if you want to track that down, and that's in your notes. During that 75 days, several things happen, including the sheep and goat judgment. Joel chapter 3, the first two verses, tells us that happens in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel 3, the first two verses. God brings all of the Gentiles still alive in the world, those, those who survived the warfare and the plagues and the, and the other judgments. He brings them together in the Valley of Judgment. And, and we, can, we can flip over to Matthew 25 and read it quickly. When the Son of Man comes, verse 31, in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And here nations, plural, is the Gentiles. And he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he'll set the sheep on his right hand, but those goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for me from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and said, Lord, when did we do any of those things? Verse 40, the king will answer them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What's he saying? He's saying you loved the Jews through the tribulation. When the world turned against them, even more than the world had in the previous 20 centuries, you loved my people. And in loving my people, you loved me, and I'm not forgetting it. Who are the righteous here? They're the saved, obviously. What do saved people do? They love. 
How does Jesus know who's righteous? He says, well, you should know who's righteous. You're the ones, when the whole world was overtaken with hate, were the ones who were still loving the least and the last and the lost. He goes on to say, to those on the left hand, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. Stranger, you didn't take me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they will say, Lord, I think we missed that. And he'll answer them, verse 45, Assuredly, I say unto you, inasmuch as you missed an opportunity to do it to my people, I'm paraphrasing, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. End of review, pop back to Isaiah 49 as we wrap up tonight. I know that was quick. If, if you want to take a deeper dive into that, grab me and we can, we can talk through it or I can point you to some, to some study resources. But what we just reminded ourselves of is a backdrop to the remainder of chapter 49 which is why I thought it was a good investment of time. Behold, I lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set up a standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Gentile believers from around the world will be making pilgrimage to Israel just as Jews will be. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Maybe the first time in history the Gentiles will bow down before the Jews because it'll be apparent to all God who saves is the God of Israel. God who rescued those tribulation saints is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? This is a reference to Zechariah 12 and 14, the first couple of verses of both of those. Zechariah 12 and 14, I think I put that in your notes, where we read Antichrist comes against Jerusalem, the city falls, half of the residents are carried off and taken captive. We've talked before, why do I think Satan is so, so venomously, vehemently full of hatred for Israel? Well, when does Jesus come back? When Israel repents, if Satan can wipe out Israel, does that make it impossible for Jesus to return? I don't know, but Satan is just crazy enough to believe that. Zechariah tells us the city's going to fall, half of the residents will be taken captive, but not for long, God says. Verse 25, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I'll contend with him who contends with you. The enemy of your enemy, I'm sorry, the yeah, your enemy is my enemy, God says. I'll save your children. I'll feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And God's just getting started. He's going to have more to say in coming weeks. But as we wrap up tonight, what do we take away from all of this? I was talking to some of the guys this afternoon, and we were reflecting on the fact that we are not currently in a revival. Not in this state, not in this country, not at this time. 
And there's not much we can do to change that. In fact, there's nothing we can do to change it. No amount of preaching, no amount of sheep beating, fear-mongering can manufacture revival. We can't engineer. We can't bring it about. We can only, and we should, pray for it and set our sails to catch the wind should the Holy Spirit blow revival to our land again. But that's it. We're between revivals. Praying, waiting, looking, hoping. But we're between revivals. And that's not unusual. Most of church history has been between revivals. Most of most history is times like that. History is not a straight-line algebraic function. History happens in bursts. History unfolds in, 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 in fits, where a whole bunch of stuff happens all at once, and then, and then things sort of plateau. Newton in the 1600s, Newton and others, but Newton's the name that we, we learned in school. It was a time of recovery, uh, or discovery rather, and possibility. Discovery, possibility, breakthrough. All kinds of stuff was happening. And then more than 200 years go by of, of relative drudgery in the field of physics. 200 years during which it was more and more apparent that Newton didn't have it all figured out. He had a lot of it figured out, but there were some things that were observable that Newton's equations couldn't explain. And there were some theoretical things that they didn't even begin to touch on. But it was more than 200 years before a guy named Einstein came along and put math to it. Same is true for political history. You know, in the 1700s, after centuries of monarchy, empires, kings, all of a sudden you have this fit of democracy, French Revolution, American Revolution, this, this wave of democratic thinking that the world hadn't seen for centuries. Times of revolution, whether, whether they're scientific or industrial or technological, political, or whether they're revival, because that's what a revival is. It's a revolution in the hearts of believers. It's a revolution that the Holy Spirit brings to the world. It is exciting. Times of waiting for it, not so much. You know, some of the elders of our tribe, they're, 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 they're like the, the remnant of Israel that returned after the Babylonian captivity. And as they rebuilt the temple, they said, oh, not like the temple we used to have. And I listened to some of the elders of our tribe. Ah, it's not like the conferences we used to have. It's not like the worship we used to have. It's not like the preaching we used to have. I remember when Raul Reese would get up and he'd, he'd, he wouldn't even open the Bible. He'd just say, hey, some of you need to get saved so you can understand what I'm about to tell you. If you need to get saved, come forward. And 100 people would come forward. This isn't that. This is a time where ministry is retail, not wholesale. Dakota was one of the guys that I was talking to, Dakota, you know, former football player. I said, this is not the era of 50-yard passing plays. This is three yards in a cloud of dust. What's my point? My point is we live in a time that it's easy to get discouraged. Get discouraged with, with the world, get discouraged with our lives, get discouraged with our ministry. I get discouraged. Is what we're doing here making a difference? Would, would, would anything change if we just closed the doors and, and, and stopped? And, and I'm not saying that so you can reassure me. 
Because God already has. Look again at verse 4 as we wrap up tonight. Then I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my Lord. Jesus was discouraged. Before him, David was discouraged. Jacob was discouraged. Moses was discouraged. If you're in the world, it's hard to not get discouraged. Because most of the time, it looks like the world is winning. The kingdoms of the world are prevailing. The earth dwellers are prospering. But what was Jesus' answer? What did he do? What did he focus on? By the time we got to verse 4, he'd already told us, verses 2 and 3, he remembered that he was called of God and chosen of God. He remembered that he was a person of the word of God. That he was under the protection of God. All for one reason, to serve God for his glory. And every one of those things can be true for us. We can be people of the word. We are under God's protection. You and I are immortal until the plans that God has for us are fulfilled. We're sanctified. We're set apart by God. Why? To serve him. To glorify him. If you're discouraged tonight, Jesus has a word for us, and that word is obey. What's the last thing you heard from the Lord? Do it. I don't think it applies anymore. Then seek the Lord for a new word and do that. Obey. Because when we do, we're going to be among those who look around, verse 21, and say, wait, how did all of this happen? Just like the Jews returning to the land. Who are all of these people? Where did they come from? They're the fruit of ministry that probably nobody thought much of. They're the product of faithfulness that, 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 that people didn't put much hope in, perhaps. They were words that People thought, well, this is vapor. This is just, just going to fall on, on dead ears. But one day, Israel looks around and says, wow. And one day, we'll look around and say, wow. One day, we'll be glorious, verse 5, in the eyes of the Lord. Because we let God be our strength. God has a plan. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. He has a plan for us. And it has no more been thwarted than his plan was thwarted when Israel rejected Jesus. What looked like a time of victory for the enemy was a time of God saying, oh, this is, this is what I intended all along. Be encouraged, family. We are people of the word set apart under God's protection. And as we step out in his strength, in obedience, by faith, trusting what we know, not what we feel, what we hear, not what we see, God will be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your promises. 
And thank you for the example of Jesus. If Jesus had to preach to himself, we get to. We know we're in such good company. We remember Judson in Burma who dug a grave and laid down in it and waited for you to take him. We remember Martin Luther quit ministry for a year because he didn't see any fruit. Discouragement is natural. You got our supernatural. And the plans that you have for us just as much so.